Hello, listeners. Before we start today's episode, I have to tell you about an unbelievable new podcast coming to Forever Dog, this very network, that's going to blow your mind. It's called Beyond. And if you love the supernatural, horoscopes, aliens, ghosts, that kind of thing, you are not going to want to miss Beyond. Beyond follows comedian and producer Mike Kelton as he uses supernatural forces to solve everyday problems. Instead of just going to therapy like a normal person would, Mike works with witches, mediums, ghost hunters, cult leaders, healers, potion makers, and astrologers to answer questions like, can a witch solve his dog's aggression issues? I say no. Can a hypnotist cure Mike's Diet Coke habit? Probably yes. Can Mike use his powers as an empath to help exercise a demon from his favorite thrift store in the East Village? I'm going to have to listen to that one to find out. (laughs) You should listen to all of them to find out. In the first episode, Mike gets help from a medium to connect with his deceased grandfather to get advice on whether or not he should move in with his boyfriend. It's a terrific episode of podcasting, and it's available right now. So whether you're a believer or a skeptic or clearly, like me, somewhere in the middle, join Mike Kelton for an open-minded, hilarious, and emotional journey through the incredible world of all things spiritual, spooky, and downright beyond. Can we put an effect on that? Can you keep in where I'm saying? Can you put an effect on that? Can you keep in the part where I asked to keep it in? (laughs) Subscribe to Beyond today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Forever. A fascinating and endearing, is that a weird word to use? These guests endeared themselves to me. I really enjoyed talking with today's guests who are uh, Sierra Ornelas, who uh, is a comedy writer. Uh, She's written, she got her start on Happy Endings. She was on all three seasons and she's most recently on Superstore and Splitting Up Together. Uh, we also have Monica Boletsky, who started out as a PA on a writer's assistant, rather on Lost, and sort of worked her way on all kinds of interesting shows, including Friday Night Lights and Parenthood, Fargo. Uh, she has lots of cool stuff to talk about. And finally, Grania Godfrey, who has been writing superheroes from her start on the Tomorrow People through Flash and now Legends of Tomorrow. Uh, it really is a great conversation. Uh, I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Before we get to that, let's talk to Andrew Miller. I'm now talking to Andrew Miller, television writer, uh, comic book writer. You and I collaborated on a comic book, which was a lot of fun. Uh, Andrew, thanks for taking the time to chat. Thanks for having me. Andrew, you are the co-creator of The Secret Circle, the uh, beloved and uh, long-lost program on the CW. It was a show about witches. I really dug it. The, the, you, you, might, you might call it the least successful <laughs> witches show in the last 10 years, I think, is, uh, is the way I, I refer to it. <laughs> That's but, your claim to fame. Yeah. That not many witch shows could, could only last one season, and somehow we managed to pull it off. But so it's, it's crazy, too, because it was such a good show. Like, first of all, you had this incredible cast, but also, like, it was a smart show, and you were doing fun takes on witches that I think hadn't really been explored before. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> my, my mom felt the same and, uh, wasn't enough, but yes, uh, we, we tried, we tried to do, yeah, we tried to do a fun new ish take. It's hard to find new territory with witches, but yeah. we, 
we tried our best. That was the thing I kind of wanted to talk to you about. Is so you you uh, developed the show, you co-created it with Kevin Williamson, and but when when you guys started talking about this, like what was the way in? How did you start to say like we can't do the same old witch tropes, so let's do this? Like what did this look like? Well, we had a series of books to start with. Mm-hmm. Um, these like uh, very successful book series that I really loved. And what I took from that was just the pain of, of transitioning from child to adult. Mm -hmm. And that that's what came across most in the book, just how hard it is. And that's what we tried to do with the TV show that, that it's like that the transformation from a young adult to an adult is kind of magic in and of itself that mm. things grow and change and you look different and you feel different like it's 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 underrated in its majestic qualities mm-hmm. or magic elements so if you start with that but it's also painful it's painful both physically it's painful certainly emotionally and uh and so that's where we started was to try to get the sort of get the reality back into teen witchcraft. Mm-hmm. And it was less about wands. <laughs> Wasn't it all about wands? But, yeah. but at the time, like it, to, to contrast it with Harry Potter, something that I love that, that was very much the magic we wanted to to ground the magic in a different way that it wasn't just wands. It wasn't just a book that magic was hard and and had consequences because at the crux of secret circle was this idea that the world is in some kind of balance and you can you can take some of the energy in the world and use it manipulate it to your liking but there's a cost to it and Mm -hmm. we tried to keep the cost present and relevant in everything which was part of the problem of the series by the way oh really because yeah i think so i think that if it were, I never wanted someone to be able to read a spell and something happened. Yeah, because it just felt like, well, it's so easy. And who, who, who what is, what's the difference between a witch and someone who's reading a spell? And so, what I wanted to do was to take different people who were in touch with different aspects of nature in different ways, and and then add magic to that. Mm-hmm. So. But it was that it would be hard that to that to create fire meant risk risking something, whether it was blood or emotional strife or uh, humiliation or embarrassment, something. But I think that was the quality that people didn't like about this. <laughs> that, that ultimately, people were like, "Yeah, no, no, that makes sense." Can they just wave a magic wand? Because oh, no. this is really just uh, bumming us out. Um, that's or, interesting, though, because that's not like that. That idea is in in the stuff I've looked at in getting in preparing for Hexwives, and also in the conversations I've had with other creators of TV and comics and stuff. Like that idea of limiting the magic and making there be uh, sort of an emotional or physical stake in it feels like it's part and parcel to which lore or to which tropes. Yeah. Well, it's also, I mean, the, 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 the opposite of that is difficult because if it's just, if they're just, I kept saying this isn't X-Men, they can't just, right. I used to liken, not just in which product, but it, X-Men are, you know, people who can 
people who have the power of telepathy or can make things levitate is basically close-ups of people looking like they're farting and then you cut to something happening and i just find it annoying that you go oh look they're really concentrating and isn't that isn't that great and then you don't see it's not it's i don't find it cinematic Mm -hmm. i don't find it interesting so and i also felt my constant argument to, and again, I, I have to stress that the show only lasted 22 episodes and it's all my fault, but <laughs> I kept on. saying, well, if people could do magic, if it was so easy, then why are they even going to school? Why do they, yeah. why do they do homework? Why do they eat? Why do they do anything? Like why, if you could, if magic is so easy, why not just do magic all like I would do magic all the time. I would never bother with anything like i wouldn't get dressed in the morning i would just magically get dressed like it didn't yeah so if you start there you say well then we have to yes people would say you're right andrew we can't do that you have to limit it and then i'd say okay so to do to do this spell you really have to figure out the language properly get the right things Mm -hmm. invest enough of yourself something like let's say you wanted to do an intense spell that involved water someone who was naturally connected to fire say couldn't do it and you'd have to find someone that that had a connection to water so that was the second part of our show which was i felt that it's hard to get six teenagers to agree on a restaurant let alone magic so let's add that to the mix where you go they're stronger together because they have they each have these organic natural connections to the earth and you're going to need all of them at some point. And so whether it's groups of three or four or six, ultimately, mm-hmm. you know, you need a group to pull this stuff off and, and therefore, but try to get them to agree on anything because right. they have different personalities and they love and hate each other and they're right. fighting. There's, yeah, and, There's a soap opera going on at the same time. Yeah. That's which, pulling them which apart seems, or putting them together. But that's, that's also what makes things difficult that it yeah. shouldn't, it just shouldn't be magic shouldn't be easy because then everybody would be doing it. So my, my hope was to add obstacles, both realistic, both uh, emotional and physical mm-hmm. to make the series harder and more interesting. And ultimately, <laughs> I think that was a big mistake because <laughs> they just wanted something funner and they they kept saying like why do they have so why are they bleeding all the time and i was like well you know it's it's you know they don't not all the time but if you want to they couldn't resurrect people but if you wanted to do something right. that 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 bended the laws of nature you have to it 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 it, it costs something right you have to pay it, for it yeah so that's what i really you know. dug about the show that was the thing i remember it being very like the act of doing magic is very physical for the characters. And I thought that was, it was something I hadn't really seen because we had seen like Sabrina and Charmed where, you know, Sabrina is played for laughs or Charmed where it sort of comes pretty easily to them and it's just sort of a device to work the the soap opera plot. This incorporated both. And I think maybe that is what people found difficult. I think the people that like the show really like that element Mm -hmm. and aspect. And it felt... And when it was successful, because it wasn't, you know, because of this conflict, it was always hard to do what we really wanted to do. But I think the moments that we achieved something to at least toward this goal, I think it really resonated with people. And then it just wasn't enough people to keep it on the air. (laughs) I think it's also it was a show that was a little ahead of its time in that way, where I think you'd have a much easier time now where sort of genre stuff and even horror stuff uh, 
is much more at the the top front of viewers' minds or even executive minds, where like they've seen enough that they can understand a small change to the tropes that they've seen. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. No, I think if anything, the show was great for other people to say, "Hey, I can make a better show than that," and 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 <laughs> then on. they did. Um, but no, at the time there were only were- vampire shows, yeah. barely even werewolf shows. And I think people were like, werewolves are so set or vampires are so sexy. Look at vampires. And I kept saying, what if they just do the same thing over and over? They just, they're just biting people. That's not fun. <laughs> these, these kids are fun over here. And, um, but yeah, it, it was still like, nah, that's hocus pocus. bullshit. Yeah. Did like, you think of the show as a horror show? Uh, no, but Again, it, no, but I was aware of the horror element, mm-hmm. and we we used to say to directors, um, this is what the show is supposed to feel like, but please make your own little horror movie, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we And we con- constructed episodes that were all over the genre map, I think. We had, like, there's a Cabin in the Woods kind of episode, and there's mm-hmm. one where they went back into their own memories. And so th- the going back in your memories isn't a horror premise, but it was horrific in the things that they found back there. So yeah. I think, ultimately, what I liked was tapping into the dark side of this in every episode, and mm-hmm. that that's a slippery slope to horror, but the intent was always, if you are going to try this life of magic, be prepared to be frightened by who you are and who you're going to come up against because it's, it's, it's not, it's not all spells and yeah. And robes. It's not, yeah, it's not, it's not all wizard hats and wands. Yeah. There's no quidditch in right. the secret circle. It's, it's, That's, uh, it, yeah. But what you've described is such a great pitch like it's certainly stuff that i'm thinking about in doing the comic it's stuff i know that i've seen sort of like in in this new sabrina in the new charmed like it definitely feels like it's where which tropes are now so like it's a very thoughtful take and and you know i think if people go back now and find secret circle which i'm sure is streaming somewhere that they will enjoy it and it feels very contemporary though it is you know five six more six 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 or seven years old yeah yeah. Uh, before we wrap up, I would love to know what some of your favorite pop culture witches are. Um, I mean, I think, I think with Secret Circle specifically, when I saw the craft, mm-hmm. I was I was really blown away by how contemporary. I hadn't, I didn't, rem- I don't remember seeing something that was so of my generation in, in that way where it felt what I liked about it was how realistic it felt like with people awakening to powers that they shouldn't have. So Mm. I, I, and I thought the way it was presented and the, the goth quality and was amazing. And then, I mean, older, I, I don't know if this is witchy enough, but, um, Ruth Gordon in Rosemary's baby always stood out as, like my kind of old witch lady (laughs) that, that she was so smart. And again, bringing it back to nothing was easy for those poor witches in Rosemary's baby to conjure something like to, to, 
to get what they wanted to bring a dark power into a balanced world took so much effort. And it felt, I liked in Rosemary's Baby that it felt like they were so committed. And yet at a certain point, you just would believe if they just gave up because it's just <laughs> too damn hard to, to, to make magic. But she's a, she was an effective incredibly creepy witch that I liked a lot. Yeah, that's a great one. That It's such a grounded and like character-based approach to the trope, right? Yeah. Uh, that, that, yeah, you believe it, <laughs> that they would stay with it and you believe it even if they, if they gave up. Uh, she would have been an amazing like gingerbread house witch. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, you know, we all have or have had grandparents and grand, like I feel like my grandmother bringing these weird recipes from her childhood in Poland or Russia like that all seem like witchcraft and hmm. and Ruth Gordon was someone where you're like she's someone's grandmother and she I think hers are really witchcraft her recipes it's <laughs> yeah. not that's not just for a cold that's that's to kill somebody yeah. so oh and angel heart I guess that's different voodoo but but, but yeah uh, that's it's a fun take on the material right it's and and yeah. something that hasn't been done as well very often like angel heart did that stuff really strongly yeah and again made it hard yeah like angel heart nothing nothing you can't just slip up on a spell and turn something into a frog when you wanted to turn into a toad it's it's uh there there are serious consequences and that's what i like yeah i think that's and i think that's good advice for anyone like especially for writers creating a magical world which is a conversation i've had a lot lately that like it just can't be easy. There have to be consequences, whether, again, it's physical or emotional or whatever. Um, I think that's a really smart way to look at it. Okay, then, then to that, and I'm sure you'll have to cut this out anyway, but, but <laughs> I think to that, one of the things that I really like that we did with Secret Circle, and I think sh should be present in almost all magic things, is that you will never find greater examples of magic than in nature. Mm -hmm. Like, to start, to, the way seeds can become trees the way things transform the way nature can make things happen i mean it's really just a lot of magic and i feel like when our show was successful it was taking those principles and turning it and amplifying it and making it a bit more fun sometimes but it always just seemed like the smart path because it felt grounded it felt sort of real and when you use those elements, I mean, I think real witchcraft, I think Wiccan, you know, there, that nature is involved in Celtic rituals and all mm -hmm. these things is no coincidence. So I, I always think it's a good place to draw from um, as opposed to pure fantasy that's unhinged from the real world. So yeah. that's, that's, yeah, I think I, when you're, if I were doing more magic, that always starts there. I absolutely agree. And hearing you talk about it makes me want to see you take another stab at this material. Please <laughs> go do more of this stuff. Uh, look, man, you're a, good, you're a good writer and you're a good collaborator. So I want to see more of this cool stuff from you. Well, thank you. <laughs> I'll try my best. Thank you for chatting me uh, with me about my this stuff. Uh, it is always a pleasure to talk. Let's, let's talk soon. Sure. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Uh, now is the time for you to call up your local comic book shop and pre-order the only thing I care about, my new Vertigo comic called Hex Wives. It's about witches, and it's about gender politics. Does that sound fun? Probably not, but it is. The artist is amazing. The colorist is amazing. The editors are unbelievable. 
Uh, I'm just hanging on for dear life and hoping that people buy this so I can tell dozens and dozens of stories in this world. So please call up your local comic book shop. If you don't know where it is, go to comicshoplocator.com, put in your zip code, and uh, order that comic, Hexwives. It comes out on Halloween. You just tell them you want it, they'll hold a copy for you, and then you go to the store and buy it. It's easy. It's like $4. And I think you're going to like it. I do. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! The way I'm going to begin is to ask you each to introduce yourselves on microphone. Uh, tell us a little bit uh, about where the listener may have seen your name on their television screen. Uh, and Sierra, let's start with you. Okay, hi. Uh, my name is Sierra Nalis. Before I start, Yate, Sierra Nalis, Yunche, Tabahe, Nishle, Nakaidinet, Bajishchit, Twahaglini, Dishache, Do, Nakaidinet, Dishanelli. My name is Sierra. I'm a member of the Navajo Nation. I'm born of the Edgewater clan and for the Mexican people. Um, honored to be here today. I have to say my clans whenever I speak in public, or else my family will be very <laughs> mad at me. Um, yeah, and I. Ooh, I'm a comedy writer. I started on a show called Happy Endings. Now, hang on one sec. Yes. You say I'm a comedy writer, not in the usual embarrassed way that I see most comedy writers admit that. Okay. Should I be embarrassed? <laughs> no. Where do you get your confidence in being a comedy writer? Oh, I'm not I'm not confident <laughs> in being a comedy writer. It's just that I am. I mean, I did it for, it's, for it's the longest job I've had not counting like restaurant work so I feel like um, no I mean I'm a, I'm a comedy writer I started in I mean I don't know I started in 2010 mm-hmm. I was on a show called Happy Endings mm-hmm. worked there for all three seasons um, I started out as a Disney fellow so I got oh, in through one of those awesome programs um, but was lucky enough to sort of stay on and kind of yeah. um, hop across that whole sort of like a lot of uh, I find like a lot of let me just start over. Anyway, whatever. So I... <laughs> no, let's... Let, I'm, and I apologize. We're going to no. get into this for one sec because it does come up a lot with these fellowships and they're a great opportunity for many writers who may not otherwise have access. Yeah, they're huge. It changed my life, so... Absolutely. The other side of it is sort of you get staffed, you're free for a year to whatever show right. generally. And oftentimes... You sort of have to make your way again after that. Yeah, it's so just, I'm glad they kept you on. No, yeah, it was really lucky. Like I always kind of acknowledge the luck of, of that situation, and that I was on a show that was on for three seasons. So sure. that's the other thing. Because after that, I worked on a couple of single season shows, um, Surviving Jack, mm-hmm. which was a Justin Helper and Pat Shoemaker show. Um, I worked on a show called Selfie. I worked on a show, a beloved show. Oh, I loved. I mean, it was one of my favorite jobs. Yeah. Um, I worked on a show called The Hustle, which was Prentice Penny's first show before Insecure. Oh, right. He was a writer on Happy Endings. Um, and then I got Superstore. I was on Superstore for all three seasons. It's still on. Mm-hmm. But now I've jumped over to a show called Splitting Up Together, which is on ABC. Great. And yeah. in the meantime, you've been developing and selling Developing and, and like doing that. my best to cool. carry my tired wares around town. So, yeah. <laughs> we'll talk about That's all so of it. so hard to do both, though, I find. It I have was, not been great at <laughs> writing on the side of writing. It's hard. Yeah, it's really hard. It was a, kind of a nuts thing. I had had a baby, and I was, like, terrified I was going to, like, be run out of the business. Uh-huh. And so I was, like, three – he was, like, four days old, and I was so filled with hormones, and it was three in the morning, and I just emailed my agents, and I was like, I don't want to disappear. Like, find me something. And I was, like, freaking out, and then that's how my development started. But I really don't think I would have done it had I not been, like, afraid of the whole situation. So, yeah, it's it's a lot. That's so funny. Uh, good. We'll, we'll get into yeah. it. Grania. Uh, my name is Grania Godfrey. I started on the Tomorrow People, then was on Flash for two years, and now I have been on DC's Legends of Tomorrow for four years. 
And God, has that been on for four years? Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> this will be our fourth year. Right. I feel like we finally found our groove. I'm always telling people if you watch it at the beginning, <laughs> right? give it a, another shot. Well, yeah. People love this show. I mean, I feel like all those, that whole universe of CW superhero shows, like people are in for all of them and maybe don't even differentiate among them. Yeah. I feel like our fans are kind of the underdog B team kind <laughs> sure. of fans because usually Flash, Supergirl, Arrow get all the love. But right. uh, Legends is such a wonderful place to work. And, good. Yeah. That's, That's good awesome. to hear. And I, I do want to get into it because we've had some Flash and Arrow writers and I'm mm. curious how Legends is doing things differently or the same. Um, so we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But Monica. I'm Monica Boletsky and um, I wrote on Friday Night Lights, Parenthood, uh, Leftovers, and most recently Fargo. Wow, Can you talk about awesome. what you have most recently worked on? Are we allowed to talk about uh, it? You mean my development? Yeah. or um, I can't say what I sold, but I sold a pilot off a of pitch recently oh, okay. to one of the streaming uh, studios. Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. That's so I'm, I'm having fun with that. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's, uh, let's go way back. Let's talk a little bit about breaking in. Um, Sarah, you mentioned uh, the writer's program, uh, the fellowship, rather, that yeah. you came in through. Um, what was your background before that? Did you know you wanted to write television? What prompted you to even get involved there? Yeah, I mean, I've always been a huge TV nerd. Um, my mom is a fifth-generation master Navajo tapestry weaver, so she's sort of like the LeBron James of Navajo <laughs> tapestry weaver. She's like really, really I well. That show. Oh my god, we're trying to write that show, but uh, she. Uh, so yeah, she was an artist, and so she. But weaving is very sedentary, and so she would give us money and say, "Go to Blockbuster and get like five movies, or like go." And we're going to watch. And so binge watching was like big way before people were binge watching in our house. And we lived in Arizona, so it was always really hot. And so we just stay kind of indoor kids. And so um, after college, I sort of I majored in creative writing and media arts. And I got this internship at the National Museum of the American Indian at the Smithsonian. I had sort of Googled Native American film internship. And there was like two places. And one was the Smithsonian. And um, and so the museum had just been built. It was like the last plot on the mall. And, and they um, it was really inspiring and really amazing time. And that sort of turned into a job. And so I was a film programmer for about five or six years minus a year in Chicago. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so I got paid to sort of read about movies and watch movies, and there was a huge collection of Native films, and like when I went in, I thought it was like me and this guy, Chris Eyre, who had made Smoke Signals. I thought <laughs> they were the only two people doing it. And you find out, you know, in North and South America, there's, you know, thousands of Native people making movies since the 1920s. Yeah. Um, so let me, let me stop sure, you here yeah. for a second. I'd like to hear more about that. Um, where do we find these? What is stuff you can recommend that is maybe easily accessible for people? Well, I mean, I think uh, oof, I think the the film and video center at the National Museum of American Indian is actually very helpful. My old boss, Melissa sure. Bazzani, and and there's also another branch in New York, the New York uh, Museum. They have a whole collection there that's searchable and that you can, um, and they're very open about um, trying to like help people find films, especially for like right. festivals and programs and things like that. They do a daily screening and a monthly screening and, and special events. Um, and then there's just a lot, there's a really great native film community. Um, so I think just, you know, getting on Google and stuff, but Netflix has a lot of things. One of my favorite documentaries, Miss Navajo, which was about the Miss Navajo pageant hmm. made by Billy Luther, um, is on Netflix. There's a bunch of stuff. You just kind of have to do a little bit of digging. Sure. Um, there's indigenous. Well, I think you, even that is enough for yeah. people to get started. Um, you can at me at Twitter. I'll help you. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, there's, there's a lot of different, and like the Sundance has its own mm -hmm. branch of native, um, films and a whole component that's been there since the beginning. So there's these really great collectives, Video Nassau Deus. There's like a bunch of places. Um, Asuma TV is like a um, Alaska Native um, mm. film.
film channel you can stream things and you can search a lot of films from there from all Funny. over not just Alaska um, but yeah so it was a great job and, and I really loved it but it was hard because I wanted to make film and I wanted to make TV and I um, would you know host these filmmakers and then they would leave and I'd have to process their paperwork and they were on to the next beautiful thing and I'm like oh I really want to do this and so because it was a government job and I was kind of a lazy 20-something, I would just watch Hulu all day. Like, I would do my job, but, like, Hulu was just always on. It just started. And um, and I saw that there was this program that they offered for Native writers. And I made shorts and written things. But um, so there was this Native program that they were offering writers um, – because there weren't enough Native writers applying for this big ABC program. Mm. And so I used up all my sick leave and all my, like, weird annual leave. <laughs> and I went to Santa Fe, and I'd written this, like, terrible 30 Rock. It was, like, 20 pages, and it was a Halloween episode. And it was it was everything you weren't supposed to do. But there oh, were enough, God. like, jokes and well, stuff in it. Now, let's, yeah. let's stop for a second. <laughs> yeah. um, and I sort of want to hear this from all of you. Yeah, sorry if I'm, I don't um, know. No, it's so interesting. No, no, yeah. I'm just like, oh. Um, so we should say for most of these fellowships, most of these writing programs, you have to submit uh, an, a speck of an existing show. Right. Um, so you wrote a 30 Rock. I wrote a 30 Rock. What were the things? And, and have you both written specs of existing shows or have you just written uh, originals? I have. You have. What I have. But, and I dated by the fact that she was watching Hulu at her job in her 20s. I'm a lot older. So. <laughs> oh, back mine was when I and Grace. Right. So, yeah. so mine was Weeds. Um, that's a great one. That's a great so one. it was really fun to write. Um, and I think a lot more people were doing it when I was breaking in. Yeah, me too. Yeah, less people. I mean, I think to apply to a lot of these programs now, you don't always have to spec. But yes. I always suggest to young writers to write that because I know a lot of people where their pilot might not have resonated with a showrunner, but they can always pull out that spec mm-hmm. and you prove that you can write in someone else's voice. Yes. It kind of bums me out that people don't write specs as much yeah, anymore, but I, I get it. So. I've, been, I've been sort of banging this drum for the past couple of years because there's value in it. Yeah. Right? You, it's both a learning experience and a good sample to have that it's, does show you can write for Especially when else. you're a staff writer, I feel like what your skills are going to be that are needed in the room at that time is the ability to write in someone's voice much yeah. more than Absolutely. you know other things. Um, so, but I'm curious. You said you did all the things wrong in this. Yeah, you're not supposed rock. to write a holiday episode. It was supposed to be at least 32 <laughs> pages. Um, I had like a bunch of guest cast. It was just like really bad everything that I did. But um, but the guy who taught the class, my mentor, this guy Jeff Harris, who's amazing and teaches a lot of these programs. He he saw something and and brought me in, and I wrote a better 30 rock, and then I applied to the fellowship with that. And when I got back to DC, I was just kind of like, I don't want to do this. And in the late 80s, my mom and um, her sister had spent uh, a lot of time weaving this giant piece and it was like this huge rug and it took them four years it took them two years to make but they didn't talk for two years so all, all together it took four years to make. <laughs> oh wow but um this is such a good show <laughs> yeah. but uh they won best of show at the santa fe indy market it was the first time in like 80 years a textile had ever won and it changed our life wow. like, it sold for sixty thousand dollars and we we were on cnn and it was like but it was like this big swing to sort of get off the reservation even though we hadn't lived there for very long and and, and just to kind of change their life my dad went to pharmacy school through that wow. my Aunt's life changed. She was able to buy a home. It was a really big thing. And my mom was saying, like, sometimes you just got to make a big swing. And so I was, you know, in my 20s, no kids, no marriage yet. I was like, let's do the swing. And so I quit my job and I broke up with my very nice boyfriend and I put all my stuff in storage and I moved out to L.A. I'd gotten into another program that was offered to Latino um, writers 
And I ended up getting into the Disney program. And so yeah. from that, and so it was just sort of this weird leapfrog kind of fast thing. And then from that, was able to get representation and staff on other shows. That's amazing. Have you ever written any Native American characters on any of the shows you've been on? Um, on Happy Endings, they had this idea that Dave was 116th Navajo. I remember that I episode. Because there's always this thing where people would come up and be like, oh, I'm 1-800th Navajo. Right. Like, can you help me? Like, in the museum, they'd always be like, I want to get casino money. And you'd be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And it was always so weird and awkward. And so um, I would tell those kind of jokey stories. And they're like, oh, wouldn't it be funny if one of the characters thought, you know, that they were distant and stuff. And then I always pitch stuff in every show that I work on and um, stuff I'm developing now and things. And um, But, yeah, I would, I'm waiting. I think I feel like I have mm -hmm. enough currency and emotional currency at this point to try to sell yeah. something like that. Yeah, sure. it feels like an untapped world. Like, I feel like people are hungry for new stories. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Well, I think, like, you know, five years ago I had a pilot that I wrote based on um, working at a tr trading post, which is stuff my family had done for years. I haven't. But um, and it was a lot of pushback. But now I think talking to people, I'm like, you know, trans people make up 2% of the population and Native people make up 2% of the population. And if you told someone 10 years ago there were going to be hmm. multiple trans shows on TV, people would think you're crazy. And now there are, you know. And so I think, like, I feel much more emboldened, like, recently yeah. to try to, to get that stuff on the air for sure. Yeah. And, how, and there's a lot of other people doing it, too. I'm not, I'm not the only, like, Native TV right. writer. So. <laughs> I'm curious how you um, made a living when you first came to L.A., but before you got the Disney program because people have asked me that as well recently so I'm curious how other people did yeah. it. I was really lucky. I moved out here based on the Latino program and um, they had a stipend oh, and free housing oh, so wow. I stayed there and I had to like literally like there was something in the contract that was miswritten and I thought I was getting free lunch and I wasn't and I literally had to like be like you owe me $30 for free lunch like I got like everything I wow. could from that program and they were very wonderful and very supportive but um, and then um I lived with, like on people's couches and stuff, and I I um, cashed in my four hundred one k from the Smithsonian, and then got the program like six months later. So it was like the sort of kind of yeah. running and gunning. But I was very lucky. Like I always tell people, especially like assistants, when I worked with them, like I would hate me too. Like I just it's like insane <laughs> the but, situation but I was not, in. I mean, look, you it's a big swing. Yeah, you went for it. You lived hand to mouth for as long as you had to, mm -hmm. and I'm sure you would have for as long as you could. Uh, Monica, what is when when people ask, what is your answer? What is your breaking in story? I was thinking about it, and there's sort of different phases of it because it's sort of like what you know what I did to prepare to come to LA, mm -hmm. and then there's sort of the work that I did once I got to LA, and then there's the sort of how I broke in. It's sort of three yeah. steps, you know. Um, I did theater for a long time in my 20s. I wanted to be a theater director, and I burnt out on that. Um, but I got during that time, I got to work with, you know, like household name actors and playwrights that were about to win the Pulitzer and wow. stuff like that. Um, all over, I, I tended to get um, assistant directing work, okay. like off-Broadway, or um, and um, there were some fellowships for um, people of color that I also got, like at New York Theater Workshop, and so I was exposed to a lot of great artists, and um, mostly my job was sitting in the back row of an audience for hours and hours and hours, for years, literally, and just watching the audience watch the show yeah. and taking notes on like wow. what was landing and what wasn't. Mm -hmm. So I. Think I think in the end, it you know, absorbing all of that and also just 
having to see a show over and over and over again, which is kind of mind-numbing at a certain point. <laughs> but I think the structure of storytelling kind of starts to seep in. Yeah, it internalizes, yeah. for yeah. sure. I mean, it, is there anything you remember from that time that you took a specific lesson from? Um, the main thing that I got out of it was that I didn't want to live hand to mouth anymore. <laughs> and I well, felt TV like, writing seems like the way to go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I sort of fell into it because um, I even after I decided to give up theater, um, you know, I would say to my parents, like, I feel like I'm giving a charitable donation to the theater because I'm making so little money every week, you know, um, and I just couldn't afford to do that. And I didn't have relatives in New York I could stay with or anything. Yeah. And so then I like very prudently was like, I'm going to be a fiction writer, which also <laughs> didn't work out. I didn't get into grad schools and stuff. Um, but anyway, um, a friend of mine told me about the Gotham Writers Workshop, mm -hmm. which um, back in the day there were these like yellow plastic boxes on the corners in New York City. And um, and my friend's brother was like, you know what? There's really good teachers in that program because there's so many good writers in New York who need jobs. And so for like 500 bucks, you can take this course instead of going and paying thousands for grad school and you'll get pretty good That's you smart. know I did yeah. spend hundreds oh, okay. of dollars <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't the equivalent you. of what you got, but um, no. but I looked at the pamphlet and I was about to sign up for fiction and it said TV writing and honestly it hadn't really occurred to me that people wrote television. I I was really I mean like I knew it, but I was like, oh wow, I could potentially go to an office and there's a w weekly salary and. Like, it just seemed so stable compared to the way I had been living. And so I took the class. And um, the guy was, like, the most um, encouraging person in the world. And the class was, like, ten people. And then by the end of the class, there were only three. And it was all women. And it was all women of color. And we were the only ones that could keep up with the homework because he wanted us to write so fast. And so really all it did for me was, like, give me a lot of confidence and mm -hmm. give me deadlines to write some specs. Um, and I'm still one of the women in the class is one of my best friends. Um, so but great. he was like, you girls need to go out to L.A. They need you. you they need your voices out there. <laughs> oh, you know? What a great teacher. Yeah, he really was. And so um, it, was, it was great. And um, so I ended up sort of cashing in on I had assisted so many people in theater mm -hmm. and I said like do you guys know anyone in LA that I can meet with have coffee with you know that kind of thing and because there's some crossover I, I met my agent through one that's of the great. playwrights um, that I worked with and that's again it seems like the sort of story that I've been hearing over and over is like you just shake people down right it's so much just to get a foothold here uh, whether it's through a fellowship or whether it's through just people you already know who might have contacts, who is the person that I can have lunch with, who, who will have coffee with Did me. Did you have a sample at that point? Yeah, and so at that time, when I took the class, I took it twice, actually, just to give myself the deadlines. And my job at that point was um, temping for this um, uh, company and all of the temps were artists so it was like composers and directors <laughs> and like you know the temps were all very cool <laughs> um, and so um, you know it was a super boring job but I could make my own hours and I basically spent all my weekends and nights working on my scripts and I was like at that point where I think I was 26 or 27, maybe 26 and my friends who had you know gone to good schools were now like 
getting their law degrees and their medical degrees and all the stuff. And I was like, I'm a retired theater director. Like I have <laughs> no skills, nothing. My, I don't know how I'm going to be employed in my thirties, you know? And so I was kind of like, it's now or never. And so I just, um, dedicated myself to it in a way that, um, I, I tell people, it was like, I looked at my friends who became doctors and I was like, look at them. Like they don't sleep. They work around the clock. They don't have time to socialize. Like, you have to work really hard to get what you want. And so instead of going like, why isn't this happening for me or whatever? I was just like, I can't complain about that unless I've put in that kind of work. And so I just sort of did that for a while. That's great. So, and you found the agent through other people. You had a bunch of, I did. I actually, I met with the agent. It was the only agent I had my foot in one door basically. And he turned me down and I just remember feeling this panic of like, this is my only shot, you know? And so I wrote him, I think an email when I got back to Brooklyn and I said, is there anyone sort of more junior than you who is a little hungry, who might take a gamble on somebody like me? And I sort of played to his, you know, experience and go like, I understand why you wouldn't want me. Like, what have I done? You know? And so luckily he passed my work on to two other agents who were way more junior and they really liked my material. And one was a woman and I think she really connected with, um, with the material in a different way. Mm -hmm. So I looked out with that and they said, can you come back to LA as soon as possible? So I did. I stayed on my godmother's porch, like in her back porch. She had like a, she wouldn't even let you in the house. (laughs) 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 It was like a sun porch, you know, um, she had, um, like Airbnb guests and stuff. So there wasn't room for me. But so I stayed out there and I was like, um, you know, this is my shot. And so I, I moved out here and then staffing season was basically ending. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't get staffed and I had, you know, left my boyfriend like you, Sarah. And I, you know, left my job and my apartment and everything. And I was like, okay, well I have the agent, but I have nothing else. So I ended up actually doing research for the Annenberg Center for a while and other odd jobs. I was someone's personal assistant for a while who let me write, like, at his apartment while I was running errands. Like, so for a while I kind of hustled. And then I got a writing assistant job on Lost, and that's that's how I first got into TV. Great. And we'll we'll talk about that uh, in a sec, but that's... I mean, it feels, again, it's not an unusual story to come here and then just... It does feel like a hustle for a year, for five years, as long as it takes. It can be so hard. Yeah. I have so many friends from grad school who are still hustling, and I feel for them because I feel like, you know, the ones who made it, there is a certain amount of luck. And once you get in, just like <laughs> making the most of that opportunity. But yeah. it's really tough. Uh, where was grad school for you? I went to Columbia. Okay. I, uh, I thought I always wanted to be a historian. My dad is from England. He was born during the Blitz. So I was raised, you know, going to London, hearing these amazing stories about World War II and he's a history buff and actually my mom is a printmaker oh wow Um, and I was writing my dissertation in college my senior year and just like hating the critical writing and I took a screenwriting class on a lark and I was like I'm gonna kill my guidance counselor this is amazing (laughs) like it just combined everything I loved about stories and even though I'm from LA I had no idea that there was a writer (laughs) behind movies and television and 10 years later I got my first job here 
who I are like to, so I, separated I, from oh the God. industry. Yeah. I feel like I was always aware, <laughs> which is weird. Like, because I remember Brandon Tartikoff hosted, he was a president of NBC in the 80s, and he hosted Saturday Night Live yep. and was on Saved by the Bell. And both of those episodes aired on cable in the same week. And I was like, who is this guy? And my dad had read an article about him because as a kid, he had watched Dennis the Menace, the old like Nick. I only saw it at like Nick. What is he? Nick and Night. It was and, not a Nick and Night show. Uh, yeah, and he was like he was miscast. He remember thinking that as a kid, oh and that's how he God. knew. And so I like did all this research at the library of Brandon Tartikoff and all these shows and who was writing what and like Larry <laughs> Charles and all those people. And so like it's always so funny when I hear people say yeah. that because yeah. I felt like I was like I used to beg my dad to drive me to the um, public library, like the main library downtown. It would be like me and a bunch of homeless people, and I'd be like photocopying Premier magazine. So I could like keep these articles. Yes. <laughs> so I was such a like, but it's good. Like it's a good thing because I feel like the diversity of that, like people who are obsessed with TV and then people, theater people, like I've worked with so many people from theater who see yeah. things so differently. Whereas I feel sometimes I will pitch like the most Borscht Belt stuff just right. because I was raised on like Laverne and Shirley. <laughs> and it's like so good to see like, you know, the different points of view. Yeah. yeah, yeah that's so important center. to have but in a room. Anyway. Yeah, sorry. Um, so... Then you decided to go to grad school specifically for uh, well, I came back for two years and I okay. was peeing a lot, mostly on AFI student films mm-hmm. and independent movies. So, and so let me interrupt for a sec. Yeah. So once you uh, once you took the screenwriting class, you were like, "That's it, I'm yeah, all in." I'm all in. It was nice really? to have kind of like a north star to like mm-hmm. design my life around because <laughs> I feel like a lot of people they don't really know what they want to yeah. do when they're twenty, and yeah. that's hard too. But yeah, I came back here and I was peeing. And I have so much respect for everyone who crews and works on set because that is such a tough job. And I was getting lots of car accidents because I would work so much and then I would drive back and I'd just be tired. And I'd be like, I remember this one trip on the 10. I kept like kind of tapping the back of this (gasps) car in front of me because I kept falling asleep. (laughs) This poor person, I could just tell, (laughs) was getting so mad. But um, yeah, I couldn't figure out from that how to learn the craft of writing. Mm -hmm. And because my mom is an artist, I kind of thought, well, if writing doesn't work out, I can always teach if I go to grad school. I did not understand loans. I did not understand (laughs) that people would just give you money, but then eventually (laughs) expect you to pay them back. I don't know why I didn't get that. So I went to Columbia, loved living in New York, spent five years there and was working in bars and, you know, spent way too much time at grad school. But luckily enough, met a great group of people, felt like I was taught by amazing professors Mm -hmm. and came out here. And I wrote an original pilot that got optioned by FTV. FTVS and Chernin, <laughs> and that's kind of how I got my first staff job, but I never wrote a spec before. Wow. <laughs> that's wild. That's so, amazing. So in school, what were the kinds of things you were writing? It was all features, and New York oh, really? and Columbia is very geared to more kind of independent features, mm-hmm. so it wasn't really so much my voice. I was writing a lot of stuff to try to get it made by director friends, yeah. and then the pilot that I wrote that got optioned is like a big world building. The world is run by mummies, but it starts in the 1930s, and I'm it's like in. an alternate history. Yeah. <laughs> it was crazy, but so I think... So left your own advice is this is the sort of thing you'd be Yeah. Like. That's yeah. interesting. But you weren't really given that opportunity in school. Well, it was just... I mean, I loved my experience at Columbia, mm-hmm. but it is a very much a New York independent yeah. film kind of school, which was great, too. And, I mean, I love features. So TV is not necessarily where I thought I would end up, but this is where the jobs are. Yeah. And how did you make the connection from the school to the, you said, Chernin office? Um, yeah, I actually, I came out, and because I'm from L.A., I was lucky enough to be living at home. Yeah. And I wrote this pilot, and I was out at a bar in Silver Lake, and a friend 
came, a friend of a friend, and her boyfriend was there, and he was a writer, and we just started talking. We, like, you know, we're into the same stuff, and he was so sweet. He asked to read something. He read it, sent it on to his manager. I, I signed with him, and then from that I got an agent, and they send it out around town. Oh, but it was really, and I don't even love to go out that much, but it is important <laughs> to just go out and meet people in L.A., you know, and for Absolutely. writers to help each other, too. I think, it, and it's, like, Again, it's hard for writers to go out and do yeah. that. I think there's a certain personality type that, you know, we tend to want to stay home. And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I do think, though, that life is so important for writing. I find when yeah. I'm writing, like, everything I read, I use, all my experiences. And yeah. sometimes people get in this zone where it's like, I can't do anything but write. And I just don't know if that's necessarily the best for your process. Yeah. So what are you all doing these days to get out of your own heads and uh, make time to live life? <laughs> you just had a I just had a baby so I don't do any of that yeah no that counts as experience counts yeah. experience right no um I'm trying to think I have a lot of hobbies I do a lot of like crafting and stuff I write at a Korean spa which is nice because it's like <laughs> that's, that's amazing do, so. you're like the most interesting writer in Los Angeles <laughs> no, no, no. walk me through that oh that's awesome because I have a lot of anxiety and so what I'll do is like I found that I... Now you sound like a comedy There we go. Right here we are. Um, So I always will, like, kind of freeze up if I have a task to do. And so um, Korean spa is predominantly Korean people, so there's not a lot of English being spoken, which is nice. So you're just sort of in your head and your thoughts. Mm -hmm. And then um, the internet's spotty, so, like, it's hard. So I'm not always on my phone when I was on the... And then I'll I'll say, like, okay, I'm going to write and eat, like, just a shit ton of bulgogi and then write for three hours <laughs> and then I'll put it all in the locker and I'll go sit in a hot tub and it's like a $15 entry. it's not like a it's right. not like a fancy spot it's you yeah. know but um and I'll just sit in a hot tub and then I'll start to think about stuff I'm like oh that could be a joke or that could be funny or this could be better I should do this and then I get dressed and then I go back and write some right. more and there's like a there's like a like a patio where everyone smokes so you can go up there so you just kind of keep moving floors so the sure. the environment's different do you get a massage there. while you're there? No. I, it's just not relaxing. It's so uh, fine because I'm always like, I'm going to get a massage at 10, and then I, like, waste time, and then I never end up actually, like, doing that part of the relaxation. <laughs> but And it's fine. You hear, like, you know, like, sorority girls gossiping about their boyfriends, or you see, like, families, like, fighting, or you see, like, marital, like, disputes or something. So it's a lot of, like, people – I find – I don't know. I love L.A. I hate people who slag on L.A., but it's hard when you're always in your car. Whereas when I was in D.C., you would be on the train and you would see people fighting or see people talking or you'd have random conversations. And I find, like, there's um, a lot of old ladies that always need help, like, putting their headphones on or doing things like, I'll help them. Like, it's it's a nice, weird, like, youth hostile-y kind of vibe. (laughs) And so I find that that is helpful. To Absolutely. my process. That's Absolutely. fascinating because it's similar to my process, but it's totally different than my process. Because <laughs> I go to cafes, but then I walk. And mm-hmm. so, like, instead mm-hmm. of going up and down floors like mm-hmm. you do, I just walk to the next cafe yes. for, like, the next work block. I'll, like, walk around, and um, I find that I can't sit that long. Mm-hmm. And then the walking, like, is where I start yeah. to sort of... T- process stuff in my mind or stuff will just pop into my head yeah Mm -hmm. I used to try to like punish myself and just sit all the time and be like it should come it should come Mm -hmm. and then there was this um I took like a writing class that this guy that guy Jeff had taught and the guy who created MacGyver came and spoke (laughs) and he was saying how he had like a wood shop and he has a bunch of puzzles and 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 he was saying that the reason 
why your brain your brain needs like what is it called like not your subconscious or whatever needs to kind of play around and mm-hmm. so you should be like focused on a task for a while and then the reason why we have ideas when we're showering or when we're driving is because our body like 40% of it has to pay attention to that activity and then the subconscious gets to kind of like um, figure out what it wants to do well, sure. and so he was like now I create those situations so he's like I'll go build something in a wood shop or I'll do a puzzle and so I like don't feel as guilty for like going and sitting in a hot tub or doing something else yeah. with my hands or weaving or whatever to kind of get my brain working yeah. in that way. Yeah. Doing something with your hands, taking a walk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Things we hear a lot. And and it's not video games either. Like no. anything story-based is going to get in your way, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, watching TV doesn't always do it. <laughs> I know. I still do that. I'll do it during like the dumb draft part. I'll just have something Absolutely. on. But but yeah, it's not It's not For good. noise. Yeah. That background noise. Um, Grania, when you are on script... Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm on script you, right now, yeah, so this is a good That's question. <laughs> yeah. What does a, a typical day, a writing day look like for you? Well, this week was weird. Usually um, our showrunner, Phil Clemmer, who's lovely, kind of mm-hmm. likes us to write in the office so we can dip into the room. So you end up being like, oh, just come in the room oh, for really? a little bit. And then you're like, but wait, what am I going to? But this week my mom just had a double knee surgery. So I was writing in the hospital <laughs> with her, which oh was a surprisingly great place to write. You know, people are always coming in and out and helping her out. But, uh, yeah, I think first thing in the morning is the best before mm-hmm. you're cluttered with the mm-hmm. day and before you start to just get inside your own head, I would love to just be able to like get up and write and then take a break or work out later. Yeah, I will say, I, and I don't often uh, interject in here, but this is a realization I had only recently, which if, is if you are writing something, if you can get out of your own time zone, highly recommended. Oh, <laughs> you mean you, like go somewhere? I was different? just on vacation and I got Ooh. more done because uh-huh. I was three hours ahead. <laughs> Of LA, so I didn't have to deal with emails. Uh, Nobody here was awake yet. Uh, <laughs> I could work from like eight to eleven. That's why the life of a feature out. writer is so seductive. Right? Is you're like, I'm gonna go write in Paris, or <laughs> <laughs> must be nice. Yeah, must be nice feature writers. Um, I want to talk a little bit about some of the specific shows that you all have worked on and um, what you took from those experiences um, as far as lessons for. Practical writing stuff or being in a room or when it's time to run your own show. Um, I'm I'm curious about happy endings. Uh, Sierra, you were there for three years, mm-hmm. for three seasons. Um, it was a great show. It, it seemed like it was a happy room it was the best. from what I've heard. Yeah. Um, that was David Casp's show, right? David Casp's show. Um, he created it, and then Jonathan Groff, the yeah. showrunner, and then John Speisel, the second season came, was um, – he was like the number two on. He was a co-EP first season, and then was like an yeah. EP the second season. So it was like um, the three of them running it. But yeah, Casp has been here, and Groff has been great. on a couple times and talked yeah. about. It and he's so good. They're the um, best. So what do you take from from these guys from this room? Again, this is your first room experience. Yeah. No, I mean, it's such a hard question. Um, it was David's first job in television, and it was my first job in television, which was awesome if you can get that, because <laughs> any, like, dumb question I was going to ask, he would ask often. <laughs> and so I could just kind of be quiet and sort of learn. Um, and then Graf was a great, just a great teacher and was really good at knowing, like, who I was and what I had to offer. And mm. I, I think before even I knew, like I was really more of like a story person 
And then he had hired a lot of these like amazing improvisers. He'd hired a lot of these amazing teams. And like he just it was almost like he was putting together like a baseball team, him and Cass. But mm-hmm. I, I interviewed only with Groff. So yeah. in my head, the way I remember it, it's him. But it was really the both of them. And um, and they were just a great marriage. Like it was David's first job in TV. But he knew so great at what he didn't know. And then yeah. he knew what he did know. So the moments where he was like, no, I'm, I'm passionate about this. And I know that this is going to work. And he didn't do that for everything. He he knew, you know, like, oh, okay, this guy's smart. This guy's, you know, worked on shows before. I mean, there was a lot of trust between the two of them. And so that was one thing I learned mm-hmm. was like that it's okay to say that you don't know. But it's also like pick your spots and know when to fight for your vision mm-hmm. and know. And, you know, and, and they were both just really good people and nice people and, and very – willing to teach and very excited to mentor, but at the same time led by example. It just, it was a really great room. And then I think um, as a Disney fellow, there was like 20 some writers in the room. There was so many, there was a lot of teams. There were 10 staff writers and I was one. Comedy is so different. Comedy is so different. It's these huge rooms and it was like. Did you break it into groups a lot? We did initially. So the first couple weeks, it's all kind of blue sky. You're saying like, what do we think these characters are? Who do we, and David had a lot of thoughts of like what that was. Jonathan had ideas. I still had ideas. And then it was sort of like it, what was nice about it was they were they weren't like older writers, but the show was set um, in Chicago. Mm-hmm. I lived in Chicago about oh, friends sure. in their 20s. I was in my 20s. And so they'd had a lot of stories. But there were certain things I remember like um, we I lived in Chicago with these three people and we lived by a firehouse and we always used to talk about when the zombie apocalypse comes, like, what's our plan? And it was just this fun thing to do. And um, I would say, like, okay, well, we have to go to the firehouse and get weapons, and then there's a deck of donuts, we'll get donuts, and you'll go get weed, and, like, we'll do this, and blah, blah, blah. And so I remember, like, explaining that just as a joke, and one of the upper-level writers being like, well, that's a story. Like, that's an episode. And so then we did this, like, zombie episode. And it wasn't based on my thing. We didn't do the exact thing in my life. But it was interesting to see them sort of be like, that's a story. And I didn't know you could just do that. You know, like, talk about your life and then make something. (laughs) Or um, there were two writers that loved to watch a lot of YouTube videos. So we'd, like, watch videos. And I was such a Smithsonian teacher's pet. I'd be like, all right, guys, let's uh, get back to it. Even though I'd never worked on TV before. And then one of those YouTube videos became an episode. It started this sort of chain reaction. And I was like, oh, you can just... So it was just a great learning experience in that way. Um, But you never really know, like, how unfunny you are until you get into that first room. Just how I was so scared. I was so petrified. I didn't talk for the first like week and I could tell like they were looking at me like you need to talk. You need to, hmm. you know. Did anyone say anything? Nobody said anything because it's also just a big room and they're yeah. trying to get stuff up and I was so low on the scale of like people's problems. And so I wasn't I wasn't loud and obnoxious and distracting, but I wasn't like adding anything either. Yeah. And so um yeah, and so it's I went balance. yeah, and so I went into Prentice's office cuz he was the only other writer of color on the show and I just was like hey man we're gonna be best friends <laughs> you just tell me what I need to do and, and he thankfully was so nice he was he didn't coddle me but he was like um, he said the showrunners are the painters and we're the paint and so he's hmm. like so when they need green if you're green then be green he's like but if you're if they need red don't try to be red he's like just figure out what color you are and then be there when they need that color and it like really shifted my thing so I realized like I'm a story person I'm a structure person and so I'm not going to be funnier than these like improvisers who've been working Mm. on you know for 10 years like it's just never gonna happen so I 
would just wait until they needed a story fix or they needed research or they needed something. And that's when I was able to just like activate. And then as time went on, right. I started pitching jokes. I started, you know, and you start to get better at all the other stuff. Um, you learn those other tools. You learn those other tools. Yeah. And so, but that was like the best advice I ever got. And that's what I always tell people when I'm on like panels and stuff. That's, that's great advice. Um, Grania, what was... What was the entry for you? What was was Tomorrow People the first Tomorrow thing? People and was, was it a staff first, job? It was a staff writing job and um there was one other woman on the show who's a consulting producer, Pam Visay, who was awesome. Oh, she's great. Yeah. And she kind of stepped away, I believe, mid season. And you know, I think part of the reason I got hired and didn't have to move up through the assistant ranks was because they wanted a female writer. Hmm. And, you know, it was I was so lucky, like you, with my first staff job. It was this group of people who were so supportive and lovely, and everybody had worked a lot more in TV. But I did feel very prepared from grad school and just, mm-hmm. you know, sitting around taking classes, giving your friends notes. It felt like this is kind of what TV was. And also um, my showrunner, who is now my showrunner again, Phil Klemmer, yeah. he's somebody who wants writers to be empowered and take control of their episode and see it through from casting through production. So I would go to Vancouver and some of prep and usually for the whole episode, which is such a learning experience. And I did feel comfortable just because I had spent two years working on sets. But, um, yeah, it was a great experience. I have been on other shows that were different. And I just wish I know, you know, right now we all talk about the Me Too movement, which is so important. But I wish there was like also just a no asshole movement (laughs) because there's so many problems in rooms that that just happen when your boss is kind of an asshole. (laughs) And uh, I I think people write better when they feel comfortable, when they feel valued, when they feel empowered. And it just seems so obvious to me. I don't know why. I mean, I understand the show running job is very stressful, but people cannot produce their best material if they're scared and mm-hmm. feel belittled. Was it easy for you to sort of step into these probably more seasoned writers with these more seasoned writers and have ownership of the material? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, the biggest learning curve coming from Columbia independent feature films, yeah. I mean, I always like feature writing too is that TV is so much about what your showrunner wants and you can be rewritten and you usually mm-hmm. are rewritten and I was kind of like ah, my baby what are you doing <laughs> but tell me about dealing with that because I know for a oh lot of writers God. that can be difficult I mean I told myself I would never cry in the office but yeah. that first year there were some <laughs> tears but it was just part of the learning experience I also had a lot to learn and mm-hmm. did learn like sometimes I think about when I see staff writers now like you will grow so much. Like, you don't have to worry about it. Just by being on shows, you'll grow. But it's really hard. I mean, I think anybody who turns in something and the thing that's published is markedly different, sure. it's a <laughs> it's a struggle, you know, to get your ego around that. But, Absolutely. Yeah. I, think, I, I think I was given good advice on my first staff job, which was like if 20% of what you wrote gets through to that final version, then you've done a really good job. <laughs> Yeah. I also think as you get to know the show better and the showrunner better, you can more curve it to yeah. their taste. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and then the being on set stuff, mm-hmm. um, I assume you had there were student films and you had that experience yeah. at Columbia. Was it similar? Did you know what to do on set? Yes, except 
there was just so much more money and the food <laughs> and the crafting was so much more. I was so and excited. And still CW, so <laughs> yeah. not that much. Oh, man. Compared to, like, being in New York, sure. doing every job. Um, yeah, I love being on set still. I feel like it's such an important part of the process what to understand. What do you see as your role there as the writer of the episode or producer of the episode? Well, we try to pack so much into so short a time, and our scripts are long. We have these big action set pieces. So oftentimes, it's kind of working with the producer on set just to figure out maybe if there's any cuts we can have. I mean, of course, working with actors. Thankfully, on the show I am now, like, actors have opinions and they're not meat puppets and they want to change mm-hmm. lines and it's helpful if there's a writer who's there who can yeah. kind of work with them and you know our actors are brilliant and know their characters so well but sometimes they're also only thinking about their character in this scene versus the whole episode so kind of being there for that and I don't know I think being a cheerleader I mean when you're in Vancouver and you're working on crew, it, you're so divorced from what's going on in L.A. Yeah. And sometimes the actors, I feel like, can feel like, where am I? What am I doing? Yeah. And just, like, showing up and just saying, you know, we appreciate you guys from, like, the Greens department. It was funny. A staff writer had just been on set. He was like, I didn't even know what the Greens department was. <laughs> and, like, I don't know. I think it makes a big difference to, like, go up there and show people that you appreciate and you're going to be in the trenches with them. Yeah. Um, Monica... It's so you you got this writer's assistant job or writer's PA job. It was an assistant. assistant, yeah. Um, which is an enormous responsibility on Lost. Yeah. Um, an enormous. It was actually divided anywhere. between me and another guy because it was so big. Yeah, and that was a big room. What season were that? Was this it was season again? four? Okay. And there were ten writers. Yeah. Um, that must have been an incredible learning curve for you. Yeah, it was my grad school, basically. <laughs> um, it was an amazing, you know, group of writers in the room. Um, and, uh, you know, I wasn't really, you know, there to contribute anything except, you know, take notes. And so I was just listening and observing and seeing how, you know, how they did it and what worked and what didn't. and. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had to record everything on a tape and then I would have to play the tape at night and make sure I caught every riff or every, um, thing. So I, it was sort of like Groundhog Day where I would take a break, (laughs) I'd have dinner and then I would listen to my entire day over again. And so like in my sleep, I would start to hear the writer's voices in my head. (laughs) Like, you know, sometimes I only get three hours of sleep and it was it was really crazy, but it was an amazing education. I'm sure. Um, what was stuff that maybe you took from that that taught you about thriving in subsequent rooms? Um, I think it's a combo of the craft that I learned in the room, mm-hmm. stuff like you know how to break story for so many characters. We would have sure. like. Or they would have 23 to 26 characters in episodes sometimes in the future, in the past, in the present. Um, And a lot of the shows I've worked on since then have, you know, are character driven ensembles. So um, that and um, I I took a lot of um, I, I was particularly impressed by how certain writers in that room when they got stuck on something how they would get unstuck. Mm-hmm. Um, what were some of that? Do, what some of those techniques? Do you remember? Um, or anything that you use yourself? I'm trying to remember. I think one time I remember um, we they were stuck on something and it was sort of like, well, what if we try the opposite? Or, you know, what if we don't do that at all? Or, you know, just the sort of improvisational mindset of 
just being able to throw something out and look at it in a different way, um, I've found really useful and, you know, in any room, um, and two of my best friends are improvisers in London. I actually used to write screenplays with them and I didn't know anything about improv, but they have such an improv mentality that I picked up stuff from them and I took one of their classes in London. And now I realize like when I'm doing features or even, uh, pilots, you are constantly getting notes from executives and, the the improv stuff it it's always coming up of hmm. you know like well how can I solve this thing that they're stuck on or that they are not seeing the way that I'm seeing and and that idea of just being able to let go and and come up with another idea yeah. I think is so important um, to anyone who wants to be in a room because you know you the ability to let go is yeah. very important um, <laughs> absolutely and not always easy for a new writer I mean we yeah. were just mentioning this a second ago but for new writers especially you tend to be precious um, yeah. was this something that you had to experience to learn or were you able to do it in a safe way <laughs> as the writer's assistant I think I saw it so much that yeah. I wasn't someone who was super dug in. I think we all have our ideas that we get really excited about, and it's right. hard when it's not embraced, you know. Um, Did you pitch in that room? Or? No, not really. We could yeah. pitch a little bit on the side to one of the writers who was mentoring us, and sometimes she would, um, you know, bring a pitch of ours in mm-hmm. and then give us credit or something like that. Was that formally but it wasn't, stated that she was mentoring? Uh, no, she just sort of, um, it was Liz Sarnoff. Yeah, she, she's she's great. And she, um, no, she just went out of her way to kind of, you know, pay attention to us, which was great. That's really valuable. Yeah. Um, and then it looks like the next, uh, place you landed was the Kadams camp. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah. So, um, oh no, actually I, my first person who gave me a job was Oliver Goldstick on Lipstick Jungle. Oh, right. It was season two of Lipstick Jungle. And um, it had been more comedy-based for the first season than they wanted yeah. to go drama-based. But it was sort of a sinking ship. And so it was a really intense first job. Um, yeah, because it was sort of like, you know, there was a lot of state at stake and you know and the great thing for me was I was a staff writer and um, there was a lot it was very upper level heavy mm-hmm. and like Sarah I had just been in New York and I was in my 20s and they were like we need someone who's like knows what's going on in New York <laughs> and what's cool and whatever so I was kind of hired for that and then Oliver is a playwright as well so the theater thing oh, came up and I say this when I mentor people like when you're in an interview with a showrunner I don't always Uh, meet with them the same way like with Mm -hmm. Oliver I really emphasized my theater background and you know with with someone like Noah Hawley I probably that's not something I would focus on Um, but for Oliver that's sort of how we connected Mm -hmm. and um, he liked in my specs that my secondary characters had a strong voice and he said it's unusual you know for the the, and he was like that's what I need because I know my main characters but I haven't put as much thought into the secondary characters And actually, when I met with Kadams, he said something similar. Oh, really? Um, yeah. And so I was actually unemployed for about nine or ten months after Lipstick Jungle went down. And I wasn't sure I was going to be able to afford to stay in L.A. And I was, um, Michael Jackson died. There was like, it was just like, there was just like so many things going, you know, like that were sad. Um, and, uh, you know, I just wasn't sure what to do. And I thought, well, who's going to be interested in me? Like one hit wonder. She was a staff writer on a failed show. You know, I was like, oh, I could sort of see that was going to be it. And so I read uh, all the pilots that season and I said, um, to my manager and my agent at the time um, when I read the Parenthood 
um, pilot, it was originally in Philadelphia, which is where I'm from. And there was just something about the way Jason wrote. I just, I was mm. just like, I, I just felt a connection in the writing. And um, I, I called my agent and my manager and I said, I don't care if the, you can only get me one meeting this staffing season. I really, really, really want to meet on this. I just think I can write That's this. Great. And so he just called and called and called and called and bugged them. And then I finally got a meeting. And it was such an incredible meeting because I just sat down with Jason and after like, I want to say like six minutes, it just, he kind of felt like someone who was my family or mm -hmm. something. And he just looked at me and he said, are you sure you wouldn't be better for Friday Night Lights? And I just, my heart stopped <laughs> and I just was like, oh my God, are you serious? You know? And um, he was like, yeah, yeah. Because oh. my, my mom worked with a basketball team in an oh underprivileged high school for like a long time. My parents are kind of like, um, you know Tammy and coach um, <laughs> without all the glory but um, <laughs> but uh, you know in that moment I was kind of like if I try to talk myself into a job on Friday Night Lights that doesn't really exist and out of the one on right. Parenthood I might end up with zero jobs <laughs> so I was really nervous so I I I said a little bit, but then I brought the conversation back to parenthood because I didn't want to like screw myself yeah. out of both. But I ended up working on both. Let's talk for a second about the Kadem's rooms because uh, it's been a couple years since uh, I've had to or gotten to. And there are writers who really thrive there. There are writers who really do well there. And there are writers who really had trouble there, too, um, because they could be emotional rooms. They're very honest rooms. Tell me about your experience. Yeah, you probably heard we had cry a lot Wednesdays. We would joke about. Um, so um, yeah, I think um, one of the main things I learned there was emotional storytelling and how to um, just sort of beat out character arcs in a story emotionally. Um, and um, I I don't know. I think. Um, it's hard to say, but I do think, uh, you know, Jason is sort of a quiet, quieter mm -hmm. person. And so I think that first season when I was on Parenthood, the thing that clicked for me, sort of like what you were saying, Sarah, about um, the color advice mm -hmm. that you got from Prentice, was um, I would notice that sometimes Jason would say something he was looking for, like he was looking for green, mm -hmm. and people would start pitching red. And I was sort of quiet, and I would think, like, well, people aren't really answering the question that he asked. And so I would just think for a while, and the conversation would go elsewhere, and I would still try to answer the question that he had come in with. And so I got a couple of those in a row, and then I was like, okay, I sort of get this now. Mm -hmm. um, and some of that is a skill that I think um, is important, um, which is when somebody comes in with a, a thing they want to show, how do you dramatize that with the characters, yeah. you know? Um, and so that's that's something that I try to show when I help people that I'm mentoring um, or, you know, people get notes. Well, I, I understand the note, but I don't know how to address the note. You know, it's, it's sort of like how do you come up with the pitch or the scene that's going to show the thing mm. that... Um, that they want to get across. Which is, I mean, this is basic screenwriting, but it's a thing I think a lot of us forget to keep in the front of our heads, right? Is this is, it's an active dramatic medium. And so any emotions have to come, or any actions or whatever it is, has to come through action, right? Yeah. Um, it's very interesting. I'm curious to hear from all of you as, as we start to wrap up, what is something you wish you had been told 
uh, early on? What is something that either it took you a while to learn or when you did learn it was like, oh, of course that. Whether it's about process or getting along, uh, you know, business, whatever it is. I mean, just a small one is um, befriend the editor mm-hmm. and ask and and before you go on set, interview them about what the showrunner likes and what they don't like and how to do coverage. Because, like, I didn't know how to do coverage. Uh, I'd worked on film sets and stuff, but you're so busy bringing bagels or whatever. You know, mm-hmm. you don't really know what you're doing. And so um, I was really bad uh, on set for the first two episodes. And I would give notes at the wrong time. So you'd be getting coverage mm-hmm. on another person. And I'd say, well, we should get one this way for this other actor. And they're like, well, we've already shot their coverage. And I didn't know what that meant. And it was just a nightmare. And so I, I had befriended the editor. And she's like, oh, I can take you through. And she showed me how to do it. And then from learning how to do that and also learning what the showrunner likes, what what performances they don't like. And they see everything. They see what, right. you know, if the actors, which actors know their lines and which ones don't, like all of this, they just have all the gossip. And so <laughs> she downloaded me on everything and it was very helpful. And then the next episode, it was like night and day in terms of like what I was able to offer. Wow. And so now whenever like I try to help staff writers, I always ask if they know how to do coverage and show them. And, and it depends, like, you know, um, traditional sitcoms usually it's like you start the wide and then when you go in for the close-ups that's often when like actors will sort of turn on a little bit more Mm -hmm. and because they know superstore we did everything in a wide to a medium so Mm. we never really used close-ups and so why was was that just because it's the style that the the showrunner had come off the office and likes to do a lot of like camera movement a lot of like kind of like um kind of dirty dirty takes and things Mm -hmm. like that and so found shots and and things in the foreground and so um, so then you'd have to tell the director, you know, he'd be waiting for the close-ups. He's like, we'll get in coverage. And I'm like, no, we won't because we can't <laughs> use those. Like, we have to use these. And so just knowing that and, and talking more to the editor, even as, like, an upper-level writer, to know what the, what the showrunner liked, what the upper-levels liked, it was really helpful. And so at every level that I've been at, talking to the editor and befriending the editor has always been really beneficial. That's really cool. I had not heard that before. And I think I'll, uh, part of that, too, is, you know, find out anything you can about yeah. what the showrunner wants. No, definitely. Right? Like, if there's someone who's been there longer or worked with this person before, yeah, can, that's helpful. Yeah. I think it's always, like, I think it's, like, being a surrogate. It's, like, I always tell people, because, like, I, I'll work with writers sometimes, and they get very precious about the, the writing, and I'll say, we're having this person's baby. So it feels like our baby because we're birthing and we're growing it and we're eating all the things. But ultimately, you're going to have this baby and then you're going to give it to that person and they get to raise it and they're going to get all the glory. Like, it's not our baby. And so I think, like, the more you can kind of figure out, like, what that person wants and what they need, the, the, the easier the experience is for everybody. Absolutely. That's great. Uh, Grania, what is something that you would like to impart? Well, I've talked about this before, but I feel like in a room, listening is so important. And um, as I, you know, move up and sometimes when the room really working on like whatever idea comes, like don't discount it. There's something there. I get really frustrated when I see people like interrupting each other or like I can almost see sometimes when people are thinking of the thing to say (laughs) rather than just like taking it in. Um, I don't know. I feel like it's a good skill that will serve you well in dinner parties (laughs) too, but really like just trying to listen and kind of see the nugget in anyone's idea, which I, you know, continually work on. But I feel like, you know, there's usually something there and people can build on it and, you know, the whole yes and thing. Mm -hmm. But yeah, listening. Yeah, there's a flow to a conversation, right, in in a room or at a dinner party (laughs) and finding your way into it rather than asserting your way into it. There's a big difference. Yeah. Um, Monica, what about you? 
Um, I really like the smaller rooms, so mm-hmm. that I think it would be difficult for me to go to back to a larger room, um, partly for that reason that Grania's describing. Um, like on Fargo, we only had four writers. Um, that is small. Yeah, you know, that idea of sort of everybody having sort of an equal voice and, and you know, having experience not to to do that and, and not to negate something unless you have something to replace it is sort of a basic, yeah. you know, um, thing that's important to know. The other thing, um, I think the th- thing that was hardest for me was um, I spent so much time in the rooms on my shows and I didn't get a lot of production experience. Um, so I felt like I got to exercise the muscle of breaking story so much, but I didn't um, get as much experience exercising the muscle from like outline to script or script to rewriting um, because the upper level people would do the other drafts and stuff. So one thing, you know, I find is the the skill that is the hardest to do unless you're, you know, writing tons of scripts is, you know, you can pitch the characters and you can um, come up with the story beats, but then how do you take, you know, something that the room outlined and give it the life of a scene? That that step for me was the hardest and sort mm-hmm. of last step. Um, and I had a, you know, a lot of writers help me along the way with that. Um, what was some advice they gave you? It's so hard to say because it's so yeah. specific to those scenes. Um, but I think the thing that I got most out of it was sort of point of view. Yeah. You know, it's easy to write scenes on sort of like a um, like your bird's eye and you're kind mm. of watching two characters in a bedroom talk about yeah. something. But actually like deciding I'm going to lean more into like this character in the scene is experiencing this than the other and how would I tell that differently rather than sort of in a proscenium kind of way of looking at the scene that changed a lot of my writing yeah I find that so important it's hard when there's eight people in a scene but like that's what cinema is you know really being with one person and their secrets and their feelings Mm -hmm. can you (laughs) can you do that for a scene with eight people and do it eight times. <laughs> like, I remember, yeah. I, I think it was um, Melissa, what's her name, who wrote E.T.? Oh, oh Rose. Something like I that. I forget, yeah. Anyway, She's amazing. the writer yeah. of E.T. Let's cut out that Yeah. Part. <laughs> <laughs> I remember hearing advice from the writer of E.T. saying that she would do a draft that was sort of that bird's eye view, but then she'd go back through and do a draft from every character's point of view. Yeah. And it informed every scene and really every moment in a different way. But can a scene be from multiple characters' point of view? That's the thing that's tricky. I feel like you really do want to be more with one person than anyone else. Um, we did that a lot. Oh, sorry. So, well, like, I'm working on a show called Splitting Up Together, and it's really interesting because it's a comedy, but we do a lot of, we're like, the show's not afraid to do, like, dramatic mm-hmm sort of fights between these couples or 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 marital sort of kind of debates and it has been really interesting because I feel like those are fun scenes to write because in a marriage they both have point of views Mm -hmm. and so it's like if you can kind of make it we always talk about like making it a fair fight you know so it's like some people in the room I think are are you know team one person and the other one (laughs) or team you know Martin and you're wanna but it is nice I think to go back and kind of figure out like 
it's never going to be totally fair and balanced, but like, is there a moment in this scene where I can see his point and then mm-hmm. I can see her point, you know, mm-hmm. because then yeah. that's when you really feel bad, especially in this time where it's like a character that have gotten divorced. You do want to feel that sort of loss. And I mm-hmm. think, I think it can be, but I don't know about eight people. That's not like, <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to figure out two people. Like, <laughs> even, even at its base, you're getting to an honesty from every character. Yeah. Right? No yeah. character is just speaking to speak or to move the plot. Oh, along. yeah. You know well, I think party scenes are great for that. Yeah. We did that a lot on Parenthood and Friday Night Lights where, you know, you have a party and um, and so you're you're going to have, like, angle on and, and you'll go and have, you know, a duet or a trio between, yeah. you mm-hmm. know, different characters and you kind of move around the room and pay off some story points that way. Yeah. Crazy Rich Asians I just watched and they did a great job of that where yes. it's like you everyone has a story and you're clocking it from the beginning and then you kind of see especially I think in families that's always nice because it's like everyone has to play this role and this daughter is the favorite or this son is the least favorite or whatever and it was great to kind of watch these like sweeping scenes where like mm-hmm. everyone had a moment you know yeah. yeah and I think this also comes to I think something that people responded to in your early specs is that these tertiary characters had lives of their own right I mean this is something that my partner and I have tried to write is like any secondary character could be his own show and isn't right, yes. living in his own show. Yeah. And you shouldn't be able to just kind of swap dialogue around. Yeah. They should have a really mm-hmm. specific Absolutely. voice. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, this is all great advice. Uh, I'm so sorry we have to wrap up. I could go another hour with you three. <laughs> um, but let's wrap up anyway by talking about what you are watching on TV these days. What is getting you? Ex- I'm coming to you first. What is getting you excited or inspired? Uh, what are you talking about with your friends, with your loved ones? Uh, what do you wish you were watching? I'll go first. I'll save you. <laughs> I've been so excited by Castle Rock. I just yeah. feel like it's brilliant top to bottom acting, directing, and there's such a sense of mystery that's propelling it. And I just love that tone and feel like it's a very hard tone to hit as a writer because you're like, how much information do I give? How much do I not? And if you Mm -hmm. say the mystery, it's probably like, oh, well, yeah. But like the way they (laughs) dose it out, oh, it's so just addictive. That's a good one. I heard great things about the Sissy Spacek episode where she's paranoid. And yeah, I need to check that out. What have you watched? So I have two kids under five, (laughs) and I'm writing a feature and a pilot and a graphic novel right now, so I'm not really watching anything to be totally uh, Paw Patrol. (laughs) I I watch Cars 3, like, I watch it twice a day. And I've learned so much about story from Cars 3. It's so, I can't even tell you about, I'm sorry to, like, no, that makes so much sense because the structure of those movies is perfect. They're so perfect, but, like, okay, I'm not going to get too much into Cars 3, but... Because, Save it for our Car 3 podcast. Yes, I mean, I could do a whole podcast on it. But one of my friends was talking about trying to write a pilot from two different people's perspectives where they're, like, both sort of the protagonists. And I was like, watch Cars 3 because they actually were able to do the Save the Cat beats for, That's like, amazing. both characters. And you kind of don't see it coming. Uh-huh. But it's weird when you watch those, like, simple stories. Sometimes I feel like it's Should we better. skip Cars 1 and 2? You can't. Definitely skip, <laughs> skip 2. 1 has a lot of value to it, but okay. it was of a time. Paul Newman's. And it's then, his last movie. Yeah. What? Yeah. That yeah. is crazy oh. trivia. Cars 3. They, they, they pulled some audio. Yeah. <laughs> but you're very busy. You can't. You don't have time. If you guys have young kids, my sister's a writer on Muppet Babies. So I would check oh, that out. Oh, I'd watch that for me. <laughs> uh, it looks real good. Yeah, it's really sweet. That's great. Um, Sarah, you're watching everything, right? I watch a lot of TV. Yeah, no, I watch I watch good. television. Good. I'm glad you're here. It's terrible. <laughs> no, um, I, I wait, though. I wait like four months. So yeah. like I just watched The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which was I did so too. good. I was like, I was never a huge Gilmore Girls person, mm-hmm. but um, I loved how like 
Madman, I feel like he was like, it was 72 degrees, so you can't wear a coat on this yeah. day in May. And she's like, I had lunch with Lenny Bruce. Like, it's just like so open and wonderful. Yes. Um, I like love that. I watch Harlots. I like a lot of mm-hmm. trashy stuff. Um, I heard Harlots is not trashy. I heard Har- it's good. It's, tr- it's It reminds me of like early Showtime, like bunch of sex scenes for no reason, <laughs> but then like really good acting, really good performances. Right. And um, I'm in a love-hate relationship with The Handmaid's Tale. I feel like oh, it's I like, can't do it. It's I can't like a do it. Clitorectomies, I'm oh, out. I know, I know. It's so good, but it's also like, there's there's some issues, but I, I can't not watch it. I watch yeah. it. And then Insecure. I'm so, I, I love so that show awesome. so much. It started, yeah, It started, yeah. yeah it's awesome. so good. It's like, it's the only show I watch on my phone so that I'm not on my phone. So I will like take a bath and just watch it on my phone. Does Prentice like, know this? You might watch it on like a big screen. It's two inches from my face, so it's like it's a big screen. But no one talks to me, no one bothers me. Like I, it's, like, it's that's, so that's the shows I like, pay the most attention to, and it's it's so good. These the ones good I have on deck are Barry and Bojack Horseman because I haven't watched Bojack Horseman, and I feel like it's a big hole in my I watching. Bojack. I yeah, love Bojack. and Barry's and great. Barry, I want to watch so it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, these are good answers. Thank you, guys. Um, thank you all for being here. I really appreciate it. Uh, good luck for in all us. future endeavors. I'm excited for what you all are up to as well. So, likewise. Thank you for listening to the Writers Panel. Tune in next Tuesday and every Tuesday for a brand new episode. And in the meantime, please subscribe and review the Writers Panel on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. And follow me on Twitter at Ben Blacker, just like it sounds. And let me know who you want to have on the show. The Writers Panel is a co-production of the Forever Dog Podcast Network and the ATX Television Festival. You can listen to more Forever Dog Podcasts at foreverdogpodcast.com and keep up with the ATX Fest throughout the year at atxfestival.com. Thank you, and see you next week. Well, you'll hear me next week. Thanks for subscribing. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.